so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Yeah, well, if you start poking me in bed, we'll <laughs> Josh, Josh is going to poke weird. and I'm going to pinch. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Yeah. And I will be back home next week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and actually in the real life studio with me today for the very first time in more than a year, are my wonderful co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everybody. It's weird that I'm not seeing you all on screens, that you're actually 3D or 4D people. You're 4D, you're not 3D. We're 4D. Yeah, if you were 3D, that would be weird. But <laughs> it's good to see you. <laughs> and Brent Leatherwood is here with us as well. And yeah, I can, I can, I can reach over and just like pinch you. Please don't do that. It'll interrupt the podcast. <laughs> and we're not we're not wearing masks either. And it's there's nothing about green. Like you know, it's not St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. So, so uh, but no, we're not wearing masks, right? Because all we're all vaccinated. Vaxxed and relaxed. Vaxxed, is what I like to vaxxed call and relaxed. That's yeah. real good. And so we're we're here. We're able to actually you know not be, spread our germs and feel fine about be it. Normal. <laughs> Well, I got to tell you, so, you know, we've all been vaccinated, all fully vaccinated. feels great to be uh, in this place of freedom. And look, you know, clearly the CDC decided last week that it was time for freedom. I'm sure Brent's going to talk to us about that later, so I won't steal all this thunder. But it feels great. Well, so that we can get into it, and though it is incredibly good to be back uh, in the studio and back with you once again, our incredible audience. Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. So... Those of you who have listened to the podcast, you may remember that we interviewed Carl Truman about his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And we also have an interview series on our site that that I've highlighted quite a bit because I just find it so valuable. And I wanted to highlight an interview that we did with Carl Truman, a print interview by one of our interns and one of our channel editors, Jordan Wooten. And this is just a good one-stop shop if you didn't get a chance to listen to the Carl Truman interview to read in his own words um, a little bit about his new book. And the reason why I think this interview is important is something that Carl Truman writes in the introduction of his book. And he says, the task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately. And that really lines up well with the mission of us here at the ERLC and how we want to equip you as listeners and our readers and us as believers to be able to respond to our cultural moments. So Jordan goes on to ask Carl Truman questions about his book, about the self, about the sexual revolution, and how our society got here. So if you find yourself just dizzied by the pace of change, especially when it comes to sexuality in our culture— 
I would highly recommend uh, this interview to you. The next piece that I want to highlight, actually, I was surprised. Jared Kennedy sent it to me, another one of our channel editors, and it's by Ethan and Michaela Holstein. They have a podcast. And when I scrolled down and was reading the transcript, I know the people that they interviewed because I went to church with them in Louisville, Kentucky. And so the title of this is The Importance of the Church When Dealing with Disability and Grief, How One Family Leaned into Community After Their Child's Diagnosis with Cree du syndrome, and I, I might not have said that correctly, uh, but Robert and Holly Brookman, when they were having their first child, went in for their ultrasound, their 20-week ultrasound, I presume, and discovered that there were some um, atypical things that were going on, and their child, Hannah, was diagnosed with this syndrome. And you can imagine, first-time parents, they were in their 20s, uh, what they were dealing with. You can imagine how they were reeling and just left questioning things. And what I appreciated about this article is that Robert and Holly share how they were tempted to not tell anybody, and uh, they were tempted to uh, just isolate to themselves and deal with their own grief, but then they were convicted that that's what the church is there for, and that's what community is there for, and they needed to press in to their church community so that they could be supported and be reminded about the truths that they had proclaimed to believe for so long. And when they ran to the church, they found God's promises to be true, and they found a refuge there, and their arms upheld by those who came around them. And so they share Hannah's story, and it's incredible. And if you are dealing with something like this in your family or just even grief or hard news, I I think you will be helped by this article, and you will be spurred on to hope. And then finally, we've been talking about uh, articles by Jared Kennedy, who seems to be the star of the show recently, and he truly is. Josh has said he's just one of his favorite writers when it comes to family and parenting and children's ministry type stuff. And so we're very thankful for Jared and for him being a channel editor with us. But we've been posting a series of things about children and teaching them about sexuality, teaching them about gender— how to prepare them for this day and age in which we live. So this article is titled, Three Subtle Sins to Warn Your Kids About and Why It Matters When Wrestling with Sexual Temptation. And this is convicting, not just if you struggle with sexual temptation or you know someone who does, but it should be convicting in your own heart, in your own life. And I'm just going to read off these things that he, he tells us we should be teaching our kids about, which we should be teaching ourselves about, and this is uh, beware of discontentment, um, stop making excuses, and then the third one, beware of sin's empty promises, and he takes this from the book of Jude, and you'll be able to read how he ties these things into how these subtle sins that we often, that Jerry Bridges called respectable sins, how they often lead us down a path to greater sins and greater in terms of their their impact and their consequences. So I would encourage you to turn to this article to check your own heart. I need to check my own heart as well. It's such a helpful article. And this article makes me realize, again, why it's important um, that we do what we do at the ERLC because we are called to be salt and light in this culture. And it seems to be an increasingly harder thing to do when faced with our our flesh and our temptation and just the muddiness of the situations that we find ourselves in. So uh, we want to spur you on um, to love and good deeds and to walk faithfully with Christ. And that's what I think these articles will help us do today.
Lindy, that is um, just such a helpful uh, rundown, starting with Carl Truman, who wrote this incredible book, Rise and Triumph for the Modern Self, which is looking at uh, the sexual revolution, how it how it got here and, and where it's taking us, and then our role as Christians and pushing back against, uh, honestly, what is a lot of darkness uh, to try to preach both the truth of the gospel and about the goodness of God's pattern and design uh, for men and women and human sexuality. Uh, also, you know, highlighting the work of Jared Kennedy is, uh, man, it, he, he is just such a model for what it looks like to think carefully about how to equip the next generation and, and especially our young children uh, as they are wrestling with questions that in a culture that is very different than the culture that even we grew up in in our generation or our parents or grandparents' generations, uh, they're, they're having to face new questions and challenges. And so if I can, uh, I just want to take a moment of like personal privilege. And so listeners, I just appreciate you hanging with me here. One of the things that we're trying to do at the URLC is we, we get questions every single day, every single week uh, from, from people who are confronting questions about their sexuality, about their gender, because of the culture that they live in, this fallen world that we live in. And we are trying to offer those people both biblical truth and the hope of the gospel. And so uh, there were some questions about another article that we had uh, published from an ebook that Jared actually wrote for us on this very topic, talking about uh, these highly charged and debated topics of gender and sexuality to your children. And so we, we published this article that said, uh, the title was, What Do I Do If My Child Doesn't Seem to Fit with Typical Gender Norms? And it was a really, really helpful look at, at what the Bible says and the wisdom that Scripture can offer us. Because uh, we get questions all the time that sound like this. My child, we get a, a parent will email us and say, my child, uh, my son doesn't feel like normal boys. When he looks at some of the activities, the things that other uh, boys his age like to do, he's, he doesn't want to do those things. So he enjoys spending time indoors rather than outdoors. He enjoys uh, cooking rather than going outside to build something. He's uh, averse to, uh, to, to fighting or to wrestling, and he enjoys uh, making and creating things. Those kinds of questions come in all the time. What do I tell him? What should I tell him? Should I try to make him embrace those activities? Is that a sign that he's not really the man or the male that God created him to be? Is he somehow deficient in those ways? What, what is your advice for me? We hear from that angle from parents. We hear from other people all the time who are wrestling with these questions because they, for whatever reason, don't seem to fit into some of the cultural stereotypes that define manhood or womanhood. And what we want to do is answer those people with both biblical truth and the hope of the gospel to be able to help them think biblically about this issue. So when we think about King David in the Bible, we see there a man who wrestled bears and lions and slayed a giant, who was also a poet and a harpist. Now, in our in our culture, that is not th- those last two things are not masculine traits. They're not things that you typically associate with manliness. Well, one of the things that we want to say because what we can say from the Bible is that when we go back to Genesis 1 and we see this pattern, God created them male and female, male and female he created them. We know there there are only two sexes. God creates us male or female. And we know that gender is the expression of sex-based traits. We know that your gender is tied to your maleness or femaleness. In other words, gender is tied to sex. But the Bible doesn't constrain us to say, if your son is male, that means he has to like to hunt. That means he has to want you to rub blood on his face or take him outside and punch him or make him roughhouse with you or whatever. Those are not biblically definitive answers to the questions about masculinity. And in the same way, if a little girl uh, embraces some behaviors that you would call tomboyish or that make make her seem less 
feminine. What we want to say to those people and what Jared says in this article that is so, so helpful, and we really don't want people to miss this, is that if God made you a male, you are a male. And if God made you a female, you are a female. And you don't have to fully conform your life to cultural stereotypes in order to live out your God-given sexuality, your God-given sex as male or female, your God-given gender as either a man or a woman. That provides hope for people who are struggling. In a culture that says, well, if you don't feel like a male, maybe you're not one. We say, if God made you male, you are one. This is so important. And for those people who, I, I understand the temptation to, to mock or to, uh, to assume that, well, look, we just need to double down on men should like trucks, like to hunt, whatever. We're part of the Southern Baptist Convention that, that originates in the south of the United States. There's a southern image of manhood. But I have friends. All of us have friends. All of us have friends with children who are facing some of these struggles because they're going, hey, that stuff's not for me. And are you telling me that if I don't like to hunt, that means I'm not supposed to be a boy? That's not true at all. And so we are publishing these resources to try to equip parents and pastors to walk with these children and to give them biblical answers so that they can know that God did not make an accident when he gave them their sex. It was not by mistake. It was by design. And so if you see any of that or you, you um, encounter these articles, know that that's the, that's the heart behind them. If you've never struggled with that, if you don't know anybody who struggled with that, God, God bless that. That is wonderful. But that is not normal. And it's only going to become increasingly abnormal as our culture continues to progress. So thanks for giving me a chance to just clarify some of those things. Well, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to point out, right, like it's not that we are extrapolating from the Bible without any examples from the Bible, right? So, I mean, talk through talk through a, an example in the Bible where this plays out. Jacob and Esau. Jacob Bingo. and Esau. Right. Jacob the mama's boy, right? And was Jacob less of a man? Was he any less male? Because he was not the one who liked, liked to go and kill wild game? No, not in any sense. We already talked about David being the harpist. In Judges, we see Deborah, who basically ends up with Barak being the commander of the army of God, these things tell us that in the Bible, there is a range, there is a spectrum because you can be, all of us understand, you can be more masculine or more feminine, but what you can't be is if, you, if God made you a male, you can't be a female. God made you a female, you can't be a male. These things are fixed, they are good, and it is by God's design. And we need to say this truth in the most loving and helpful way because in doing so, we are liberating people from cultural bondage and from sexual confusion. So that's, that's our heart behind all of this. That's well said, Josh. And it's so important. And that's why we continue to discuss these issues because they are coming at us head on. You will have a collision with them and you will be made to decide where you're going to stand and to think well about these things. And that's what we want to help you do, to be able to walk faithfully according to Scripture and then in those other gray areas where God in His Word and in His infinite wisdom hasn't given us clarity, to be able to do that um, with gentleness and with grace and with wisdom and uh, with faithfulness and with charity to those around you, and especially uh, those brothers and sisters in the church. You know, Josh, you are our ethics chair here at the RLC, and can you just speak for uh, another brief moment about the value of of nuance? I mean, it just seems like everybody wants to get in 
whether it's in a discussion like this or just a wider culture, uh, these things are black and white and there's no other way. And isn't there a value for nuance in these kinds of conversations? Well, of course there is. And I, I appreciate just a chance to elaborate a little bit further. So one of the pieces of like pushback that came in about that, that article is we said that in this fallen world, which all of us agree that this world is fallen and that it that there's not one part of creation that wasn't marred by the fall and the curse. Uh, one of the things in the piece says that in this fallen world, even our bodies can lie to us, can, can create confusion about our gender or our sex in terms of whether or not we're male and female. And people said, no, that can't possibly be true. Well, it's actually important for us to get this right because people who are a part of the LGBT lobby and pushing uh, the culture in that direction are using these uh, what we would call statistically rare examples of people who were born with uh, ambiguous genitalia where it's not apparent from the outside whether or not this person is biologically male or biologically female. And they're trying to look at these exceptions and go, see, there, there are all kinds of sex and genders. There, there are far more than two sexes. And, and gender can be expressed in all of these different ways which, which defy this biological reality of XY chromosomes. Well, what we want to say is, no, there is a pattern. There is clarity here. And that we should evaluate these exceptions by the standard of the norm. But if we are not even willing to entertain or understand that there are these exceptions out there, and find somewhere to place them, then we're not offering help to anybody who's struggling. We're not even to, able to combat uh, the talking points that are being offered by those who are exercising an unbelievable amount of cultural power and influence. So if we want to be taken seriously, we have to embrace. Uh, we have to embrace nuance. We have to speak carefully because even though all of us wish that all of these issues were constantly black and white, and I tried to highlight the black and white portions of this in the first part of what I said, but even though we wish everything was like that, it really isn't. And if we refuse to uh, see these situations with the complexity and the nuance that is there, what we're doing is trapping people who don't fit into these boxes neatly and telling them there's something wrong with you. And that's not hope. That is, that can be captivity. That can be bondage. And, and that, is, that is the opposite of what the gospel is for. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for that clarity and for such a helpful discussion about these important articles. And for now, Josh and Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that takes us to the culture section for the week, although I feel like I should apologize for hogging so much of your section uh, this week. But Brent, tell us what's going on in the world of culture. Well, so this uh, this ended up being a fairly consequential week in culture and uh, even in our own lives as members of the team here at the ERLC. So uh, it was revealed earlier this week uh, in an announcement from Christianity Today that they have hired our own president of the ERLC, Russell Moore, to serve as a full-time public theologian for the publication and to lead a new public theology project. Quote, we could not be more pleased with the addition of Russell Moore in this role, said Christianity Today's president and CEO, Timothy Dalrymple. Russell has established himself as one of the most significant evangelical voices of our time, he illuminates the relevance of the gospel to the whole of life, from everyday matters of faith to the great debates in our society and culture. Importantly, he does all of this in a voice that demonstrates what we at Christianity Today call beautiful orthodoxy, weaving together a deep commitment to the historic integrity of the church with a generous, charitable, and humble spirit. Moore, a native of Biloxi, Mississippi, was appointed in June 2013 as the eighth president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, 
Dr. Moore will commence his work at Christianity Today later this summer. Uh, He will end his time here at the ERLC. It was announced on June 1st. In his post explaining uh, this move, he wrote, As we look forward to a new era of ministry, I am filled with joy and hope to join the work of a renewed evangelical witness that is pointing a new generation to what I first learned in a Mississippi Baptist church, that the Word became flesh and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Onward. So, uh, dear colleagues, uh, obviously, this means quite a bit uh, for us at the ERLC, and um, I'll speak uh, in a in in a moment to a little bit of the the process uh, moving forward. But I'm I'm just interested in uh, in y'all's thoughts. Well, I would be lying if I didn't say that it stinks. (laughs) It stinks. I am excited for Dr. Moore and Maria and the kids. I I know Dr. Moore is uniquely gifted and suited for a role like this, and he will do fabulous there. And I just look forward to the, the healing time that he and his family can have there as well as he continues to do such important work. I'm sad for us as a staff. Um, Of course, we loved having Dr. Moore. um, And then in addition to that, we love having each other together who all came together under Dr. Moore. And so, of course, the future of that remains to be seen. But for now, we're just going to enjoy continuing to work together. And then I also wanted to say, you know what? I just reminded that an institution, an organization, the church— is only meant to be built on one man, and that's the God-man. That's the Lord Jesus. And so um, he's the one that is always with us and will never leave. And um, he's the one who equips us to do that to which he calls us. And and so he's the one that sustains us and the one that we ultimately work for. So we're thankful for the ways that Dr. Moore has pointed us to, to Jesus. We're thankful for the ways he will continue to do that. Um, in a different capacity, and we're thankful for the ways that we get to continue to do that here at the ERLC. Gosh, Lindsay, that was so, so good. And it's and it's absolutely true that we know that everything we do here at the ERLC and ultimately as, as Southern Baptists and then even beyond that as Christians, it's all about Jesus. And so that that is where our focus is, and that's why even as we are incredibly sad to see this departure. And, uh, oh, it just killed me. I was watching folks at, like, friends that are at Christianity Today celebrating, welcoming Russell Moore to their team. And I know why they're so excited, because we were excited, because we we all enjoyed working uh, for Dr. Moore. We appreciated his leadership, his prophetic voice. And, man, I mean, what a huge win for this flagship publication of evangelicalism. I mean, it was it was started by Billy Graham and Carl F. H. Henry. It does not get more uh, at the center of what it means to be an evangelical than Christianity Today. And, and I hope he's going to be a tremendous voice and through that platform is going to be able to uh, be a part of this effort to uh, revive and renew uh, contemporary evangelicalism for the next generation. I mean, that's that's incredible. Now, it's a huge, huge personal loss for us. Uh, we have known Dr. Moore not only as a, as a leader, but as a friend. And, and for many of us as a mentor, somebody who we have walked through life with. And he is tremendously talented. He has been somebody who has shown us, as Brent mentioned earlier, how to apply the gospel to all of life. And I, have, I, have, I know Christ better because of Russell Moore. I am more committed to Jesus because of Russell Moore. And I'm more committed to mere Christianity 
to this vision of beautiful orthodoxy that says, hey, I'm a, I'm a convictional Baptist, but I stand in a long line and tradition of faithful believers who are trusting in the central truths of Christianity that all point directly to the God-man Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. It allows me to celebrate. And so I'm immensely grateful, even as my heart is very, very heavy. Yes. So, uh, we, we all, obviously, uh, we, we lament, uh, some of the, the lost opportunities, uh, for some of the future work and initiatives that, that we've been working on, but we are incredibly proud of the work that has been done over the last eight years, uh, here at the ERLC as we have fulfilled the mission that Southern Baptists, uh, have, have privileged us with stewarding Ford and, and doing so in a way uh, that is uh, articulated by Russell Moore's vision. And uh, I'm thankful uh, that he's got a place where he, he's going to be able to unfurl that even more at Christianity Today. And, you know, uh, it is a historic institution, um, certainly for Baptists and evangelicals worldwide. Uh, and and it is, uh, as, as Dr. Moore explains in, in his post, um, one that has had a profound impact on his life. I, I'm honestly just eager uh, to see uh, the different ways that this project that he is leading there um, just comes to life. Uh, for us here at the RLC, obviously our commission moves forward um, being uh, the voice in the public square on behalf of Southern Baptists. Uh, our trustee chairman, uh, Dr. David Prince, uh, he released a statement, uh, you know, once this news became public, thanking Dr. Moore for his in incredible uh, years of service and uh, officially uh, recognizing that uh, Daniel Patterson, uh, our current executive vice president, um, will become our acting president uh, June 1st. And uh, that, um, you know, here over the next few weeks, uh, he will announce the, the formation uh, of a search committee uh, comprised of our, our trustees at the RLC to identify uh, the next person uh, that God is leading to, to, to come to the RLC. So there is certainly uh, a lot more uh, to be said on this, and, and we will do uh, just that uh, over the course of the coming weeks. But it's a, this is a season of opportunity. Uh, for uh, the RLC and and the SBC and uh, and we are, but we are just thankful uh, that we get to to be here in this time and steward this institution forward. Okay, so moving on elsewhere, as Josh mentioned at the top of the story, uh, after we recorded this podcast last week, the CDC released new guidance on wearing masks, and I I actually I really like the. The title to this NBC News article, it says, fully vaccinated, you can ditch the mask, the CDC says. And that's, uh, that's actually true. Now, in the uh, intervening days, there, there has been, uh, I guess, some confusion out there. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci is, has tried to come out and clarify some of that, uh, that you know, it's not a, a warrant for everybody 
uh, to, to ditch the mask. But um, for, for those of you who have uh, been fully vaccinated, uh, that's what the CDC is recommending. So from this NBC News article, it says the CDC announced Thursday that people who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 no longer need to wear masks or physically distance, whether indoors or outdoors, in most circumstances. The mask ordinance is kept in place uh, for areas of like mass transportation. So in your airports and airplanes, uh, if you travel by train or subway, or if you're in particularly vulnerable areas uh, like hospitals, uh, you will still need to wear a mask whether you're vaccinated or not. But uh, for a lot of us, this is really good news. This is the best news. So I was back in uh, I was back in North Carolina for graduation, and literally I was there on Thursday, and they were telling us, "Hey, we've got custom masks for each of you to wear at graduation tomorrow." And all of us, like our hearts, just sank because we were, while grateful to be graduating in the air conditioning, none of us were looking forward to sitting there with masks on. In in addition to the regalia, which you feel quite ridiculous in, but if you have if it's been a while since you were uh, dressed up for a graduation, it is not. You just feel like a clown. So wasn't looking forward to adding to that with the mask anyway. So that was on Thursday. On Friday, graduation rolls around. And while I was in North Carolina, uh, the CDC guidance came out on Thursday. And by Friday morning, uh, Governor Roy Cooper of North Carolina decided, hey, if you've been vaxxed, it's time to ditch the mask. And so they had three separate graduation service, uh, yeah, ceremonies on on Friday. And the first one was uh, masked up. In the middle of the second one, they informed people they could take their masks off, and people did. And by the time the third one rolled around, there were a few masks in the crowd, but it was overwhelmingly as if coronavirus had been wiped off the face of the planet. Well, that's why I told, I've been telling people, and I told my husband, I was like, I kind of liken this to my long wait of singleness waiting for (laughs) Justin to come along because uh, it was like, it was agony during that time. Although our 2020 was great for a lot of reasons, but it was agony waiting. You know, I had the mask on for all those years and then Justin came along and it's kind of like everything was the way it was supposed to be and it felt like that's how it was. Always. So that's how it feels now with us being in person, not wearing masks. I'm like, did we just, did that year just happen? Because all of a sudden things are back to normal and it seems like, seems like we haven't done anything different. Yeah, so two, two things on that. One, uh, it makes me think of the Avengers series where they have the blip, where literally everybody disappears for five years. It's like that last year didn't even happen. Now, now we lived every day of it, but now it's like, man. I feel like we're picking up in in March of 2020, except it's May of 2021. So that's something. And then the other thing is, man, we just we can't miss the opportunity to embrace the humor here. I am looking forward because I've already seen some signs of it to the sermon series that are going to come out of the mask. Jesus wants to unmask your heart, uh, or or whatever. So if you have one of those ideas, if you want to email it to us, that'd be awesome. Like we'd love to hear them because man, like Christians can do a parody like no other. And I'm just looking forward to the ways that we're gonna riff off of this for a while. There you go. All right, on a more serious note from the international stage, the attention of the world is focused on Israel. So NBC News is uh Uh, covering this. Momentum continued to build for a ceasefire Thursday after more than 10 days of violence between Israel and Gaza that has left at least 230 Palestinians dead, thousands seeking shelter from aerial attacks, and the world anxious to an end to the conflict. Hamas, which governs the Gaza Strip and is labeled a terrorist group by Israel and the United States, has fired some over 4,000 rockets at Israeli territory as of Thursday, according to the Israel Defense Forces. The vast majority have been intercepted by the country's air defense system, 
but they have also killed 12 Israelis, including two children, and left residents from the border city of Ashkelon to bustling Tel Aviv scrambling for safety. The Israeli military said it struck at least four homes of Hamas commanders on Thursday as it targets the group's military infrastructure, as well as tunnels and underground rocket launchers. And, you know, just seeing the the videos that continue to come out of Israel of uh, this uh, Iron Dome uh, missile defense system, um, it, it's it, the folks over there are, are leading a harrowing uh, life. And, um, you know, I, I think Baptists and, and evangelicals, Christians uh, of, of all stripes, we, we should literally be praying that this, this conflict uh, come to an end uh, as soon as possible. That's definitely right, Brandon. It has been surreal. I mean, we've we've heard about these conflicts forever. We've seen them unfold on our televisions. And in the age of social media, we are literally watching this as we're scrolling through our feeds. And it kind of uh, speaks to the the way that social media just distorts our view of the world because, you know, you're looking at your, your friend's uh, picture from the weekend. You're looking at something dumb or funny that you saw on Twitter or Facebook. And then all of a sudden you're looking at these images of rockets firing into Israel or into Gaza and knowing that, man, people are losing their lives. Children are living in fear. And so absolutely, absolutely pray. Uh, not I mean, Pray for the peace of Israel. Pray for the peace of this region. Pray for protection for the innocent, for children. And it is a place now for Christians uh, who may never take up arms in this conflict. It's time for us to, to intercede uh, and ask God to act to bring peace. Well, this gives me an opportunity to point listeners to a really helpful article from last week that, of course, we'll have updates now, but we put out an article last week about this when this was first starting. It's titled, Explainer, Israeli-Palestine Hostilities Could Lead to Full-Scale War. So we'll include that link in the show notes. It was incredibly helpful and taught me a lot, so I would highly commend it to you. All right, for these next two stories, we're going to group them together because they represent some really significant developments in the pro-life movement that our audience should should certainly be aware of. So we'll start in Texas, where a new pro-life law has been put on the books. Texas Governor Greg Abbott on Wednesday signed into law a bill that bans abortions as early as six weeks and before many people know they are pregnant, the Texas Tribune reports. Senate Bill 8 lets almost anyone, including people with no connection to the person getting the abortion, sue abortion providers who look to perform the procedure after the time limit. The bill bans abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected, which can be as early as six weeks, and it does not provide an exception for rape or incest. Uh, what's really unique about this is that middle section uh, that that people can actually sue if an abortion occurs after this time limit. That is a novel approach uh, in this sort of policy, and it's it's one that has folks really interested in what is going on in Texas. Just a few states away in Mississippi, there was news this week because the U.S. Supreme Court has taken up a 15-week ban there. So from the SCOTUS blog, which is an online outlet that covers everything coming out of the Supreme Court, their article states, the Supreme Court on Monday set the stage for a major ruling next year on abortion, one that could upend the Supreme Court's landmark decisions in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, in which the court ruled that the Constitution protects the right to have an abortion before a fetus becomes viable. The court granted review in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, a challenge to the constitutionality of a Mississippi law with limited exceptions that bars abortion after the 15th week 
of pregnancy. So this is actually a case that's been in the system for a while. A number of us in uh, the pro-life sphere have been uh, awaiting the Supreme Court uh, to grant cert, which which means they would actually hear this case uh, for for a few terms now. And uh, look, both of these instances are something that uh, all of us as as pro-life advocates and, and Christians who care about life, we should be paying very close attention to these developments. Brent, I feel like um, we needed like the hallelujah chorus to play when you said that the Supreme Court has decided to take up uh, this Mississippi case. We are, man, our heartbeat as an organization is to combat abortion and stand for life. And so this is this is awesome. I mean, the Texas law and then this news certainly out of the Supreme Court. Uh, just a note for people, if you're uh, searching around, SCOTUS blog is like one of the very best places you can go for information. It is not an actual publication of the Supreme Court. They have people trash them all the time uh, for things the Supreme Court does when they're trying to just describe opinions and, and realities. And so uh, just a note there for our friends at SCOTUS blog. But man, pray, absolutely pray that this could be the opportunity to to deliver a devastating blow to uh, the abortion jurisprudence to that we would see Roe versus Wade fall, that we would see, uh, and, and other related cases to that, that we would see for the first time since 1973, an opportunity to significantly curtail uh, the abortion regime to save innocent lives. Amen, Josh. And you know, it's wild how the Lord lines up the work that we're doing sometimes with what's going on in society and in our culture and legislation that's happening and things like that. And we actually have an issue of our Light Magazine that comes out twice a year uh, that is focused on pro-life issues. The brand new issue that will come out in June that we just sent the cover to the printer today uh, is going to be focusing on this. What would a future look like post-Roe? How can we be involved in the pro-life movement? How can we take care of uh, mothers and fathers and and babies, how can we prepare our churches? And and so we take a look at all these things, and it just it couldn't be more appropriate. And of course, we know that's because the Lord is sovereign, and uh, He cares about equipping us to be able to be, as I mentioned before, His salt and light in this culture. All right. Well, we have covered quite a bit of material. So, uh, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at this week in culture. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we get to tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Now, this was actually a really cool week. Uh, Besides some of the heavy stuff we shared with you earlier, we also had our ERLC Academy on Monday and Tuesday of this week, and we have a still ongoing doctoral seminar uh, in public theology that is going on upstairs, literally right above our heads as we're sitting here in the studio. And uh, we got to be together, like with our staff, together in person. This is our first live uh, event coming out of the pandemic, and it felt so good to be surrounded by our friends and our colleagues, and uh, it has just been a really, really good time. So the lunchroom can actually be like a lunchroom conversation. So Lindsay, tell us what's on your mind. Well, you know, I have to be honest and say in the actual lunchroom, I would just be talking about the new, our big news for this week and processing through that. So it's hard for me to come up with something else. So what I will say is that when I'm trying to escape reality, which of course, yes, I know that's not spiritually healthy. I'm not advocating that. Um, I'm just saying my husband and I sometimes during dinner time, after we put the kids down because it's impossible to eat when little kids are still awake, uh, we like to watch movies. And we've been watching some of the old Harrison Ford movies. So 
old Jack Ryan movies like Clear and Present Danger and Patriot Games. And then we moved on from there because Amazon told us to, to Air Force One, which is so good. And I don't know where we'll go after that, but I'm just saying, if you need a little escapism in your life, you want some fun action movies, then you should check those out or revisit them. I got to say, I think Harrison Ford is underrated in the in the scope of great actors or at least actors that have had just real success. I think a lot of times he gets he gets a short shrift there because think about it. The Jack Ryan movies, Indiana Jones, Han Solo. Oh yeah. I mean, this is a guy. He's yes. done he's Old done Harry. some major stuff. Yeah, Harry. he's an action staple. And so I I love Harrison Ford as far as watching action movies go. So I'm all about it and I would encourage y'all to to watch them. Are you going to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know, I've tried to watch some of the Indiana Jones movies, and I just— I, The first one is— I have a hard just, time. Yeah, the first one is amazing. If yeah. You're, if, you're, if you're taking in a bunch of Harrison Ford right now, it has I to be to, a part of your Harrison Ford movie yeah, marathon. I need to do that with company. It's like the Star Wars movies, the early ones, the originals. I had to watch them with somebody who loves them, which is my husband. And then I loved them, mm. and we went—we watched our whole way through all of the movies. Right. So um, we need to plan on doing that soon. All right. Well, for mine, so this week, uh, our church uh, twice a year hosts a, uh, it's called Building Blocks of Marriage, and uh, it brings in uh, newly engaged couples, couples that are thinking about being, uh, getting engaged, or, or couples that are right about to, to get married. And so uh, my wife and I were able to uh, lead a discussion with uh, some of our, our fellow church members about this next season of life that awaits them, the sweet season of life that is is marriage. And my go-to resource uh, whenever I, I help facilitate these discussions is a book by the author Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. And I just love in the subtitle of the book, it it really tells you the whole point of it. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And, you know, it's just, it, it's a theme that I keep returning to uh, w- with these folks that, um, look, just because uh, you you have found your spouse, uh, don't take your eyes off Jesus. And in fact, that, that actually will lead you to a place of greater flourishing in your marriage. And uh, Gary Thomas just, he just unpacks this so helpfully and biblically. Uh, in this book, and and just explores all the different facets of marriage. And uh, I just I, I remember um, when uh, my wife and I were uh, engaged, and we read this book together, and it was just, gosh, it was such a helpful read. And uh, so, yeah, so that's that's what I'm bringing to the the lunchroom for for us in the Leatherwood House. It's a it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. It's about your sacred marriage, Brent. That's right. You know what I like to say after that too is. You know, marriage isn't meant to make you happy, but holy. But it, that holiness leads to a deep and lasting and satisfying happiness. Yes. That's that's yes. deeper than the the happiness. It's not the of our superficial society. stuff right. that culture gives you, right? Right, it, where yeah. you easily move on when you're not right. not happy anymore. So they're not um, holiness and happiness are not mutually exclusive, right? You know? And so I. And I would I would just say I think what Gary Thomas is trying to get at right is that the aim of your marriage is is not happiness right it's it's actually uh, it's actually a closer walk with Jesus and that is where you will truly find fulfillment in your marriage and gosh that's so good 
And some of us make that closer walk with Jesus easier for our spouses than others. <laughs> you, you guys are just laying down some real truth right now. And so I'm going to take us in a totally random direction that is related, which is to say, yeah, it's what you were just saying, Lindsay and Brent, both of you, about this idea that we're not aiming for happiness, but in aiming for the right things, happiness is what we get. So I took bowling in college as an elective. And, yes. you know, so in bowling, the goal is to knock down the pins, but you can't look at the pins when you throw the ball or else you will not hit the pins. You have to look at the arrows that are right in front of the line where you're supposed to stop when you're, you know, doing your wind up and, and releasing the ball. You have to look at those arrows to throw the ball at the pins, which you're not allowed to look at. But the goal is to knock down the pins. This is happiness in marriage. In the same way, uh, I had my most successful cornhole uh, effort this weekend <laughs> when I was with my small group. And of course, all the dudes in this evangelical church's small group just end out outside throwing bean bags. And um, is that a gender norm? Well, well, it was. It, it is, <laughs> I don't know if it's a gender norm, but it is a gendered uh, reality. So, in any case, one of the things I learned because I'm not any good at cornhole is I can't look at the board when I'm throwing the bag. I have to. I have to look at my arm and let go of it at a certain place, and then the bag magically lands on the board. So anyway, that is totally worthless. But I just want to <laughs> give it to you. It's kind of the similar bowling principle. <laughs> In any case, look, I'm right where Lindsay is. I'm glad that Brent has a, uh, a great resource to share with you. I'm going to name one because it has come up a lot as I've been uh, hanging out with these PhD students this week uh, that we are happy to host here in Nashville for the Public Theology Seminar. But my, my heart is heavy. It's been a very, very long, tough week. And if I was going to bring one thing to, to the lunchroom, I would say, gosh, I am grateful for my friends my friends who are my colleagues, that we have spent our mornings and evenings together this week. We have laughed together, cried together, hugged one another, supported one another, and it has been a, it's been a ride. So for you, listener, if I can make one more personal appeal, pray for us. It's, it's not an easy time in terms of transition, and we would appreciate your prayers. In the PhD seminar this week, we have referenced over and over again this little tiny book that was written, I think, in the 1950s by Carl F.H. Henry, who, uh, ironically enough, was one of the key founders of Christianity Today. The book is called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. And if you go, I would never read a book with that title. Let me just tell you this. Uh, it's, it's only like 70 pages or so, maybe 90 pages. And it is such an easy read. But when you hear the words modern fundamentalist, just think contemporary evangelicalism, because everything that's in that book applies almost one-to-one -one, uh, to what we're walking through today. And so, look, Carl Henry was one who was making the case, and it is really uh, all about what we do at the ERLC, which is the fact that the gospel not only points us upward, it pri the primary direction of the gospel is reconciling sinners to God. But once we've been reconciled, there is this horizontal aspect of the gospel that leads us to reconciliation with others. As we live in this fallen world and anticipate heaven, we're supposed to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God. That's a message all of us can use, and I would recommend that you check that out. We'll link to it in the show notes. Let me tell you one more thing. Useless information, but interesting. My former roommate, one of my former roommates and my friend, she was a professional bowler, and she can bowl 300s. Wow. And she's made a lot of money at some tournaments. Wow. Who knew? Okay. Car I mean, carries her own ball around, all that thing. We got to end this podcast, but it just reminds me of the fact that one time, maybe one of the most <laughs> hilarious things that have ever happened to me, I'm sitting there watching uh, ESPN, just, just kind of flipping through channels, end up on ESPN, watching a bowling tournament. And I was like, oh, it's almost over. I'll watch the end. And literally hear the announcer after this guy bowls a strike, and I don't know how many you know perfect games or whatever he had to win this tournament. The announcer literally said, this may be the greatest moment in the history of professional sports. <laughs> and I said... 
have you ever seen any other sports? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) So that's funny. Anyway, that's going to do it uh, for the show here today. As always, thank you so much for listening. We love hanging out with you guys every week and sharing about the work that we're doing and talking about how Christians can navigate life in a complex culture. And if you like the show, uh, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. We really do read all of the reviews. We do find them entertaining, even when they're mean. But, you know, if you want to go leave us a nice one, that would be really really excellent. Our audio producer is Mark Owens. I don't feel like I never really give him the proper shout out that he deserves. So our audio producer is Mark Owens. Our production coordinator is Megan Smith. And also lending technical support to the podcast is Marie Delph. We are so grateful for this team that helps us put together the podcast each and every week. And for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to being back again next week with more content.